It turns out, though, that the rock was something else entirely. Mary Margaret Flately took up with a lifeguard. My divorced mother married a fellow I never trusted. My high school religion teacher flunked me for asking hard questions. And my father fell off the wagon. That hard thing inside of me turned out to be anger. My life was a mess. A mess not even of my own making. And the situation didn't get any better, either, after God, through Brother Damien, took a direct interest in me. It just got worse. I began to suspect that when the old priests and nuns who had been guiding me through my childhood said, We must take the truth of Jesus on faith, what they were really saying was, We have absolutely no proof of any of this, so you're pretty much on your own. Being a good kid and saying my prayers wasn't going to fix anything. I never went back to Brother Damien's monastery, and it wasn't long before I stopped going to church at all. God, I thought, had let me down. None of which fully explains why, twenty-five years later, I found myself at a different monastery. This one, as it happens, was also in New York State, but far on the opposite end. And the monks, well, this time the monks were Buddhists. My journey, it turned out, was not quite finished. Zen Mountain Monastery is an impressive stone structure tucked neatly into the Catskills in eastern New York State. I arrive there with trepidation on a Friday evening and am directed to a second-floor dorm room. There are eight bunk beds and a sink crammed into a small area. When I stumble in, Harold, a sixty-something attorney with a neatly trimmed white beard, has already marked out his territory by spreading his expensive luggage in a wide circle. He introduces himself amicably, but only as an excuse, it seems, to make it clear to me within seconds that he knows more about Zen than anyone, other than perhaps the Buddha himself. He mentions the many Zendos where he has studied, the Zen Koans, riddles, more or less, he has contemplated, the teachers he has spoken with. I am stuck listening to the boasting because Harold has blocked my way to my bunk, and because Wayne, the only other roommate to have arrived, has retreated to his bed where he reads a book. It takes work, but I manage to extricate myself from Harold's lecture and find a corner bed. From there, all I have to do is wonder what I am doing in a monastery anyway. Sometime after dark, I join a handful of other spiritual greenhorns for dinner, a tasty assortment of vegetables served over rice. We are next herded into the Buddha Hall, a small room with no chairs, no tables, just an altar topped with photos of old Asian men and lots of round black pillows, or zafus, scattered across the carpet. There is discernible anxiety in the room, though we have all come willingly. Many have come from New York City. Others have come from across the state. I have driven six hours from central Pennsylvania. We range in age from early twenties to mid-sixties, and except for our loose cotton clothing, it strikes me that we would not look much different if we had come for a business seminar or a weekend of bird-watching. With our shoes left in the hall, we sit on the thin carpet and check out one another's socks, lost in our individual fears. At the front of the room, a Japanese woman settles onto a pillow and tucks the hems of her flowing black robes under her knees. She is compact, barely more than four feet tall, but sturdily built. Her head is shaved. My name is Zimone, she says in a soft, pleasant voice. There is no trace of an accent, so she is probably Japanese-American. It doesn't matter, except that I am full of curiosity. 
Buddhism is an Asian religion. The monastery is run for American students, and I'm already wondering where the two cultures are going to gently intersect and where they are going to slam right into one another. I'm here to introduce you to Zen practice, Simone continues. The most important part is sitting, and there are a few good ways to do this. She tells us that the round pillows on the floor are called zafus and describes the way they can be used, then outlines different postures, full lotus, half lotus, and kneeling. For those who can't handle the pillows, she points to small individual wooden benches. You sit on the slanted bench and tuck your legs underneath, so there is less pressure on the knees. Smiling, Zimone says, and for anyone who can't handle that, you can sit on a chair. More important than how you sit is what you do with your mind, she informs us, and that turns out to be the difficult part. During meditation, the mind is supposed to be still, but the mind doesn't want to be still. In fact, left to its own devices, the mind would prefer to jabber all day, rushing from thought to thought, worry to worry. Buddhists call this monkey mind, Zimone says. The path of thinking can be thought of as being like a monkey in the jungle, swinging from vine to vine, seldom lighting for more than a second before it is off again. She suggests we count our breaths as a way to distract ourselves from the inner dialogue. And if that doesn't work, she adds softly, there is always the stick. During the periods of sitting tomorrow, if you feel that your shoulders are too tight, someone will come along with a stick, and you can request that they hit your acupressure points. You make this request by bringing the hands together in the prayer position and bowing. The anxiety in the room resurfaces. We have probably all read stories about Zen masters who punch their students in the nose or cut off their ears because they lack diligence. Zimone, though, smiles her reassuring smile. Oh, it doesn't hurt, she promises. The Kiyosaku stick is made of soft wood. We are released to our bedrooms with that thought. Tomorrow we will sit zazen, that is, meditate, in earnest. So we all need a good night's sleep. Thanks to Harold, though, I barely sleep at all. He is tucked into a sleeping bag two feet from my metal bunk, and all through the long, chilly night he snores, steadily. If I was any sort of Buddhist at all, I probably would not have spent the wee hours entertaining so many murderous thoughts about the man, but I'm not any sort of Buddhist, and I want to choke him. At 5 a.m., a bell clangs along the darkened hallways. Wayne fights free of his covers, then shakes the snoring herald. Wake-up time. We have been told to maintain silence until after the dawn meditation session. So, like Zazen zombies, we pull on our cold, wrinkled clothes and spill out into the monastery's massive meditation hall. Then we sit. In a big open room, on squat black pillows, with incense swirling past our noses and all manner of cluttered thoughts jumping through our brains, we sit. And sit some more. The sitting does not turn out to be difficult. So early in the morning, my bones are happy to hold still. My brain, though, is another story. Zimone warned us about monkey mind, and she was right on the money. My inner dialogue erupts almost before my bottom hits the zafu. Oh, I am doing meditation. How relaxing. Oops, I should be thinking so much. My knee hurts. Wait, just focus on the breath. Is that a woman in front of me or a guy with long hair? Wonder what's for lunch. Hey, wait, count your breath. One, two, 
Three, did I turn off my car lights? Zimone not only warned us that our minds might do this, she also warned us that we would find it discouraging. This racing mind stuff trips up many beginning meditators. They can't quiet the distraction, and discouraged, they give up on meditation altogether. Stick with it, she advised. So I persist, but I turn out to have an unrelenting monkey. He not only swings from tree to tree, he rips off leaves and chatters at the top of his lungs, an angry baboon set loose in an espresso bar. I try to bypass the monkey by counting my breaths. The first in-breath is one, the second is two, the third is three, but my monkey mind is uncooperative. More often than not, I lose track around five or seven. Needless to say, nirvana eludes me. The sitting meditation ends eventually, and we stand by our pillows. Pretty soon a bell rings. Along with the thirty newcomers, thirty others in long gray robes are seated toward the middle of the large hall. They are the advanced students, I assume. A handful of more serious types in black robes, with shaved heads, sit in the front. I'm trying to figure out who is a monk, who is not, and where it all fits together. None of this has been explained. Suddenly, those in the know begin chanting in Japanese. I am handed a card with the words so that I can chant too, though I have no idea what the words mean, and no one attempts to explain. Off and on during the service, we bow from the waist, and then following the gray robes in the row ahead of me, I learn the full prostration bow, falling to the knees and bowing on the floor. At various points, assorted black robes and gray robes approach the altar, then back away. Sometimes they carry incense boxes, other times they carry items I can't identify. It begins to seem awfully familiar, the walking back and forth, the retrieval of objects only to put them back, chanting in a foreign tongue. It reminds me of Mass at Good Shepherd Catholic Church when I was a boy. I never understood what was being said then, either, and though I knew what the priests were up to in a vague way, they were consecrating the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, they seemed to have found the most inefficient manner imaginable to accomplish this sacred task. The old priests reminded me of amnesiacs in a kitchen, turning back to the cupboard to get something they forgot, putting things down in the wrong place, then later having to cross the room to get those same things. To say this about Catholic Mass is a sacrilege, and if I had expressed these thoughts to my grade school nuns, I would have felt a sharp rap, and not from the soft wood of the Kiyosaku stick, either. I don't know enough about Buddhism yet to know if I'm being sacrilegious. Eventually, though, I begin to enjoy the Zen liturgy for what it is, interesting, exotic, and non-threatening. And anyway, the chants are invigorating, and we are able to move around finally, stand and bow, turn, stand and deep bow, instead of just staring at a blank wall. When the ceremony concludes, we are herded to the massive dining hall. Breakfast is steaming on long tables, but first the head cook lights incense and leads us in yet another chant, in English. First, seventy-two labors brought us this food. We should know how it comes to us. Second, as we receive this offering, we should consider whether our virtue and practice deserve it. My virtue and practice have been inconsequential to this point, but I'm hungry. 
The oatmeal is hot, and we are finally allowed to talk. Five of us end up at one table, including Harold, my snoring roommate, complaining that it was he who didn't get much sleep. Someone's watch was going off all night, he says, looking in my direction. Does anyone know whose watch that might have been? We all shrug. Kept me awake, Harold complains. Damn thing beeped all night. I am truly clueless. My watch did beep, but not only was the sound nearly imperceptible, but I know that Harold was snoring from 2.30 to 5 a.m. He wouldn't have heard a bomb go off. Yet he heard my Timex? It was my first Zen Cohen. After seeking the tranquility that comes through Buddhist meditation for half a day, only one conclusion makes sense. I have attention deficit disorder. I am too easily distracted to focus on anything. True of me, certainly. This is true as well of most of the people I know. One characteristic of our times is that we skitter from thing to thing, eating while we talk, reading while we eat, thinking about work while we dress our kids, daydreaming about our weekend while we work. We put phones in our cars, install televisions in our bathrooms, erect signs along every roadway. We seem to be fleeing stillness as if it were some curse. Yet, ironically, many of us are starting to seek it out. I am not the only one exploring Buddhism right now. There is, in fact, a modest surge underway. The interest that has been rooted for some time in cultural centers such as New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco is starting to spread inward. Zendos, monasteries, and meditation centers are popping up in every state, in the cities, in the college towns, even in rural corners. Start paying attention, and you'll notice more and more references to Buddhism, Zen, and mindfulness on television, in the news, in casual speech. Hollywood is playing its part with a string of movies such as Little Buddha, Seven Years in Tibet, and Kundun. Richard Gere is a Buddhist. So are Tina Turner, Oliver Stone, and Chicago Bulls head coach Phil Jackson. Rocker actress Courtney Love took the ashes of her dead husband, Kurt Cobain, to India to be embedded in a Buddhist shrine. While a good number of Americans are embracing serious Buddhist practice, many others are engaging in vaguely Buddhist practice. Business Week hails meditation as the new balm for corporate stress. Cops are being taught to breathe for relaxation. Beer maker Adolf Coors reports that meditation has helped lower the company's mental health costs 27% since 1987. Even Bart Simpson, the cartoon character,